0: Everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Midnight Mass Podcast. I'm your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ, and I am going to be joined by a real Christmas elf. Let's hear it for the one, the only. It's Michael Verratti. You're kind of elfin, you have to admit.
1: I'll take it. I was going to kick things off with a dirty phone call uh, in spirit of today's film,
0: but Ooh, let's hear it. Let's hear it.
1: Well, I can't now because it would dispel my elf reputation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that would make it even more dirty. What kind of elf would you be? Are you, are you like a, a Keebler elf? Are you, uh, um, are you like a, a Lord of the Rings type elf? Are you a Santa, you, Santa's workshop type elf?
1: I mean, I think to be a Lord of the Rings elf is way too much hair care and maintenance. They look (laughs) too perfect all the time, and that's just not me. I'm probably a Keebler elf, because let's face it, cookies.
0: Yeah, hello, and you get to live in a a cute treehouse. Exactly.
1: And I think, you know, I think, like, no disrespect to Santa, but maybe slight disrespect to Santa, I don't think being one of Santa's elves is all it's cracked up to be. It seems like a lot of forced labor, and it's
0: very, I don't know. I get the sense that Santa's uptight because... Well, he only comes once a year. <laughs> well done. Yeah, yeah. He has that huge sack, right? <laughs> yes. It's a three hundred sixty-five day load. Okay, uh-huh. I'll stop. I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> or, or just keep going. Let's never get to the movie. Just... These are all look. They're not even. They're not even fresh. These are all recycled jokes from uh, you know holiday gaiety. So I'm retreading the material from last night. So, yeah.
1: I'll tell you what's not a retread, but in fact was at the forefront of really a lot of horror,
0: is this week's movie. A movie that did inspire some retreads, but we are delving into the original. So Michael, let us have it. What is this special Christmas gift of an episode giving this year? Well, if you're getting creepy
1: phone calls this holiday season, it just might mean that you're celebrating 1974's Black Christmas, directed by Bob Clark and starring Olivia Hussey, Margot Kidder, Kira DeLea, John Saxon, Lynn Griffin, Andrea Martin, Art Hindle, A Cat Named Claude. Oh, my God. This movie is truly the reason for the season,
0: or at least it's the reason for the season here at Midnight Mass. The reason for the season and perhaps maybe the reason for the genre. A lot of people, rightfully so, call this the first real slasher film ever to give birth to what we now know as the slasher genre, which really obviously had its heyday in the 80s. But we can kind of trace it back to this film. Well, it's a matter of record that John
1: Carpenter saw and was inspired by Black Christmas in the creation of Halloween. And Halloween often, and justly so, gets its accolades as being the thing to kickstart the slasher movement of the 80s. But had John not seen Black Christmas... Would Halloween have been different? Who's to say?
0: That's true. Speaking of Johns, I thought it's worth mentioning since we do get pretty deep in the conversations we have. But one thing that we don't talk about is John Saxon. I do think it's worth mentioning that this is a person who was a a tried and true actor, a successful actor, who then later in life kind of made a second career appearing as police officers and detectives in slasher movies.
1: Well, technically it starts with his work when he went to Italy and did stuff with Mario Bava. True. But in the uh, American and Canadian, North American, shall we say, consciousness of John Saxon playing sort of the paternal or law, law figure in horror... A lot of folks, of course, look at him in Nightmare on Elm Street, but probably much like John Carpenter watching Black Christmas and being inspired by Halloween. I do not think it's a mistake that Wes Craven cast John Saxon yeah. as this particular, you know, father figure law man following Black Christmas. I'm sure Wes Craven saw that and was inspired by it as well.
0: Yeah, I just thought it was worth mentioning as a as a, as a slasher nerd, there is this through line from Black Christmas right to A Nightmare on Elm Street, and it's not subtle at all. And I'm glad that you used the word paternal because I think we can all agree, everyone who's listening to this podcast, he, John Saxon, he is a zaddy. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you have never seen, and this is a movie we probably won't be discussing uh, very often on uh, Midnight Mass, or maybe, who's to say? But if you've never seen Enter the Dragon, John Saxon, shirtless versus Bruce Lee, that will get you through a cold winter's night i'm just saying
0: and when i watch that movie i like to think of the dragon as my hull <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's going to be that kind of christmas special <laughs> listeners
0: oh well i mean to, to be fair um i'm i'm having a a a bit of a performance hangover because as you know i did holiday gaiety at the san francisco symphony last night so I might sound a little nasally. I woke up a little punch drunk. I mean, you know, I'm I'm I don't even drink, but you know, these shows exhaust me. So, um, well, that's a good good reason to just dive right into our extraordinary first guest, whose interview really just gave me death in the best possible way. You know, <laughs> um, and I think really sets the tone for for why we're doing this movie and why this film is so special. And I mean, what a coup to get her as a special guest. She happens to be a friend of yours.
1: Yes, she is, of course, the emblematic star of Black Christmas. And when I say that, it's because it is her on the poster that you have been looking at for the last 48 years. She's here with us today. It's Lynn Griffin talking about Black Christmas right now. Welcome back, listeners. In celebrating Black Christmas, I could not think of a better guest to join us because she was there. Not only one of the stars of Bob Clark's 1974 classic, her character's grisly fate would go on to become one of the most emblematic images in horror. Beyond this Christmas caper, she has an extensive resume in the world of film and TV, including starring roles in Curtains, Strange Brew, the Stephen King miniseries Storm of the Century, and the TV series Wind at My Back, among many, many, many others. She's also a celebrated performer of the stage, having appeared in a number of Shakespearean productions. Most recently in the holiday realm, you might have seen her as Rhonda P. Magic in last year's TV movie, The Ghosts of Christmas Past. Please welcome actor extraordinaire and verified holiday icon, Lynn Griffin. Lynn, welcome to the show. Hello.
2: Thank
3: you so much for having me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I am so excited to have you join us. We're sort of reconnecting. We met many years ago through a mutual friend and shared a, a snow-driven adventure through New Jersey. And now here we are to talk about this movie that has become such a hallmark of your career and your life. So to jump in, let's just start. When you first were called in for Black Christmas, did you audition? How did how did you end up in this, this film?
3: I auditioned uh, like everyone else. I was actually working at the Stratford Shakespearean Festival in uh, Ontario at the time. And so it was uh, an unusual call. I hadn't done any horror at all at that point. And I went in and met the casting director. You know, I don't really remember. I don't think I met Bob Clark at the audition, but I think because, you know, auditions, well, in the old days, now we say self-tape everything, but in the old days, you actually went in and they taped you. So, um, my key, I think, to winning the part was that I told them I was a good swimmer and I could hold my breath for a long time. And that was a prerequisite for the role, <laughs> you might have guessed. Without giving away any spoilers, it helps to be able to hold your breath. I played dead Actually, a lot, too. In Shakespeare, I played a lot of dead roles. (laughs) (laughs) a A lot of women die in Shakespeare. So I guess that was maybe what sealed the deal for me. It certainly helped once I got on set.
0: There probably will be spoilers. That's okay. We want to get into the nitty gritty. And um, we now know that your character doesn't make it to the end. She's not the final girl in Black Christmas. But well, she is.
3: She's just not alive.
0: That's true. <laughs> that's true. That's <laughs> right. She does make it to the end. But right. She, she, she's just she's not alive. But um, I love the connection between Shakespeare and Black Christmas in many ways because I think people forget all the horror that has been around since the beginning. I mean, all of those plays, those are horror shows. So many of them. Absolutely.
3: absolutely. Lavinia in Titus Andronicus gets her tongue cut out. Yes. There's a horror movie right there.
0: Grand Guignol, and Ah, this this sort of tradition, and and certainly Shakespeare's day, you know, uh, uh, living out our fears on stage, now we live them out on screen, Um, (laughs) it's it's a tradition, so uh, that actually is a great question, which I kind of already knew the answer for, but... I do think it's interesting in many ways when you're you're making a movie like Black Christmas and you've got practical effects going on clearly and the effects are great, but they didn't choose to create a, a mold of your face, you know, no. where they could have shot some dummy, let's say, you know, um, you know who, who was, <laughs> was you up, me that. No, <laughs> But you know what I mean. No, no, you're not yeah. the dummy. They they went for the no, non. I have been a dummy. I
3: have in Storm of the Century. They made me a dummy.
0: Oh, well, there you go. So I mean that's just
3: another segue. Okay. Yeah, but But go ahead.
0: But so when they said to you, because also there's the issue of 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 holding your breath and then just claustrophobia. You know, what was it like? I mean, I have to say, watching Black rewatching Black Christmas, your unalive scenes, as they say nowadays, are extraordinary. Like I was watching it going, like, oh yeah, that's that's not a frozen frame. She's really sitting there with her eyes open, plastic bag and all. Cat, you know, having to deal with a cat, no less. <laughs> yes. So what was that like? I mean, you know, how do you rehearse for that? Because it's that that's really intense.
3: <laughs> hey, no rehearsal. Because okay. You just better you better shoot it or you might not you might not get another take. Uh <laughs> no, I mean Bob Clark was so much fun to work with. I mean, the entire filming was like a great Christmas party. And even when we were up in the attic with uh, the cinematographer, Albert Dunk and Bob and Claude, the cat, not, not not many other people, I don't think. I think we lit the attic and then everybody left. So it was Bob who was sitting opposite me, and he was the one with his hand on the rocking chair, rocking it. We tried different things at first. At first, the idea was they were going to do the old, you know, they stick the holes up your nose or in your mouth so you can breathe. But we found out that it was creating condensation. And also you could see the bag slightly move and breathe. So I said to Bob, okay, come on, let's just go for it. Let's try it and I'll just hold my breath. And that worked like a charm. And we did do a lot of, takes. I mean, the one that's in the film, I'm even kind of amazed that I'm able to hold my eyes open and not breathe for so long. I'm kind of proud of that. (laughs) (laughs) Funnily enough, shooting a horror movie isn't always like scary or or frightening or, you know, you don't want to go to work because you go, oh, God, we're going to shoot the scene where they cut my arm off. It's all fun. It's all pretend. And Bob particularly like to keep the whole atmosphere very jovial. So they would make jokes about me though. I mean they would leave me sitting there when everybody else would break for lunch and <laughs> say, you know, it's too hard to kind of take the bag off and, you know, so we'll we'll, uh, we'll maybe just stick a straw up and give you a milkshake. <laughs>
1: I love that you talk about how the set felt like an extended Christmas party, because when film historians and scholars talk about Black Christmas, of course, much is made about the fact that it is a very grim movie. It is visually dark. It is thematically dark. But I think that when you really look at the film, there's a lot of comedy there. And that seems to be essential to its DNA. Your character has humorous moments. Obviously, the house mother has her whole drinking escapade, which of course could be viewed as sad, but also hilarious. So I'm wondering, was comedy something that Bob Clark made very clear was important to the DNA of the film while you were making it as well?
3: Yes, very, very much. And let's not forget Margot Kidder. Mm -hmm. I thought in every scene, she's hilarious. And... She was very much a method actress. You might see my gesture there. They won't know what I'm actually saying. Um, Okay. But she kept things very, very jovial. Now, you know, the thing is with Bob Clark, too, don't forget that his other Christmas movie is a Christmas story. Mm. So he has that sort of ability... To find humor and horror, because I think there's some horrific things in a Christmas story, if you've ever had one of those Chinese meals. (laughs) So I think he knew very much that he wanted to keep it light. Now, I will say an interesting little side note is when we were filming Billy's telephone call, of course, Bob was just sort of, you know, saying, well, it's a dirty phone call, so you're reacting to it. And I was young and impressionable. My idea of a dirty phone call was, I'm going to rip your panties off. (laughs) I had no idea it was going to be as blue and scary and horrific as, in fact, it ended up in the film. He kept that moment quite light. And we were just reacting, obviously, to nothing because we couldn't actually hear anything at the time. So... I think that's why he just kept it jovial all the time. And I think he definitely, definitely was trying to find the moments that could be light and funny. And, and it is funny now because I do go to some screenings and watch it on you know, big, like IMAX screens. There's all kinds of things I noticed that I hadn't noticed before. But I do respond to the fact that the audience laughs at a lot of things in the film.
0: Certainly, I think A Christmas Story is the most... Mo- I mean, it is. It's the, the most iconic modern classic of my generation, for sure. I mean, we grew up watching that all the time. As a kid, you don't even realize that it's not actually filmed in the 40s or whatever. You know, it's it's so right. great, you know. It's so well done. And it's so... Funny, and he clearly has a sense of what is truly funny. And Black Christmas is so dark. It's so morbid. But I think that sense of humor is what makes it enjoyable. You know, if it was just bleak and just awful, it's a different kind of movie. And certainly, you're right, Margot Kidder, really, she adds a whole layer to the... the She's a, a
3: holler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she really
0: is. So that's fascinating to know because... Those phone calls, to this day, you know, rewatching the film, to this day, they're quite shocking. And that's coming from, you know, me, (laughs) like a drag (laughs) queen. There's really shocking things. You know, the the phone calls themselves are are really gratuitous, you know, because that's actually part of what's scary about the film.
3: And I think also it's a psychological thriller rather than blood and gore and guts. I always think that what you don't see scares you more than what you actually see. So, you know, Billy's eye or imagining that this person is in the house with you, but you don't know where and you don't know what he's up to and you can't find him is much, much scarier than having him just appear, you know, I don't know, with a saw or an axe and start slicing up all the sorority girls. Yeah. (laughs) The the way the genre kind of morphed into that.
0: That's um, right.
3: I always think that Bob did understand uh, psychological horror much better. And I think that's why Black Christmas has such longevity and popularity, because it isn't like of that genre that then, you know, morphed into saw and all the other films and even friday the 13th and halloween and those movies yeah um bob clark did porkies right
0: right (laughs) bob clark is actually if you think about it really extraordinary because at the helm of these different genres you know the family christmas film the slasher film not just the horror christmas movie i mean the slasher genre And also sort of that teenage, naughty... I mean, Porky's gave birth to meatballs and all this sort (laughs) of stuff, right? Yes.
1: Think about it. He made Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, Porky's, Black Christmas, A Christmas Story. These are all in their way cult films that have redefined or recontextualized the genre. One thing I will say, since you brought up the synergy between Christmas Story and Black Christmas is there is a scene where the mom calls the uh, mother of one of the kid's friends and there's this visceral reaction on the phone where they're screaming and like the kid is getting smacked around. But it's such a black Christmas moment in the middle of a (laughs) Christmas story that it kind of feels like Bob Clark was just like giving that to us.
3: Maybe he uh, he had a thing about um, (laughs) phone calls. For years, I was scared of picking up the phone. (laughs) Um, Especially if there was like, just breathing, or there was a click or something. Not that I got a lot of those calls, although probably people would have liked to have tried to call me and scare me like that, but I think anything like that I call home invasion, or your privacy is invaded, is very scary.
0: Because it wasn't necessarily in the script, and you didn't hear it on the set, what was your experience seeing the film for the first time and specifically also hearing those phone calls, you know, and realizing, Oh,
3: Oh, she said, maybe I should have reacted a little <laughs> bit more. Maybe I shouldn't have just been sort of, Oh God, you know, chat, chat. That's rude. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, because I, I mean, I was playing the perpetual version Maybe I just was playing it that I didn't really understand what a lot of that meant. I don't know. But it was shocking. You know, the other thing that's shocking about Black Christmas, and this has been told to me by a lot of young women who see it now, the fact that Olivia, first of all, is her character, Jess, is so strong in that she obviously takes on whatever this horror is in her house, but also the fact, let's not forget, that Jess talks to her boyfriend about getting an abortion. Mm -hmm. This movie was made, like, in 1973, released in 74. That's, like, huge back then. I never really thought of that till somebody mentioned what an empowered character Jess is.
1: Because we recently... And unfortunately, uh, had the return of the Roe versus Wade discussion in the news. Right. You had mentioned before we went on the air that this year, seemingly more than previous years, Black Christmas is, is more in vogue than ever. And I'm wondering if because of those themes and because of how the movie took a strong stance so early, if people are recognizing that? Or, or what, what do you think about the synergy of the ongoing... This is 48 years later from the film's release, and it's...
3: Just incredible. I mean, when I started realizing it, I was going to screenings, and young women were coming up and talking to me about it and saying how they felt very strongly for the characters in that film. And I don't know whether that was precipitated by the Me Too movement or whatever, but when you think of it, they're all very very strong in their own way they don't like succumb and die easily no one in that film does so that kind of resistance to evil or to manipulation or to whatever fear they might have of the men in their life they were very much in control I mean even poor Claire you know I mean I'm sure that Chris, whatever is dear art Hindle would have liked to have gotten further with Claire <laughs> but there was no way I mean you could tell that there was a strength in all of those characters and all of those women particularly and the manipulation of the men in the police station that Margot character Barb does is extraordinary and you, you see them set up for like how idiotic they can actually be I think all of that makes the film very relevant now. And what a strange thing. I mean, maybe that's part of why I'm finding it so extraordinary that the popularity that started probably with the release of the first DVD version has grown exponentially over the years, I must say. I do more interviews, I do more conventions than I had ever done before. And people are discussing the film in a much more cerebral and intellectual way than you would ever imagine.
0: You mention, and it's true, that because this was the first, how could you have imagined? We have to remember, there was not a slasher genre when this movie was made. This was the first of its kind. I think you can look at something like Psycho and say, okay the seeds for this thing were being planted and really Black Christmas is what really kind of launched this explosion, the first of this wave. So I have to ask, you play a sorority girl who is, you know, obviously a part of this group of women who are being terrorized. But now, all these, you know, decades later, with all these different franchises and the remakes and all these things, you really truly are part of a sorority of women who've played these scream queens. And I, I wonder, like, what is that like? And do you talk about being part of this community, this sorority of, of actors who have this unique experience of being stalked and murdered? Yes! Yes! Yes,
3: Peaches! <laughs> we do! Leslie Donaldson and Lisa Langua and I, both, We, the three of us just did a horrorama and a Q&A, and this very subject um came up in the conversation i mean and and we sat <laughs> actually we started making a list of how many ways the three of us had died in uh-huh. film and i mean it's extraordinary even to this day i mean you go uh, the victimization of women has been incredible but the three of us in particular just because you know, we're we're still out there, we're still working, we're still surviving. We marvel at the fact that we are representative of this, as you say, sorority of screen queens. And we're actually, like, totally thrilled and even thinking of, you know, Leslie and I want to do a remake of whatever happened to Baby Jane. You know, come oh, yes. on. We want to do arsenic and old lace with the three of us. I mean, it would be awesome. Or all of us, like <laughs> living in some still old age home slash sorority home. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, we're all basically serial killers now. I mean, you know, we poison <laughs> our friends and our neighbors with arsenic in there lovely pot of tea and scones. But I must admit, when I get with the two of them, we are thrilled with this evolution and that whatever we're saying now, 48, 48, whatever years later, people are so interested and particularly interested in us. The fact that some of the early horror films have remained so popular and so iconic, especially for me, the image of me with a plastic bag on my head is one of the last things I thought I would ever be remembered for.
1: And it's funny because one of the things that I frequently ask guests about is their relationship with the movie in question, how it's changed over the years. But I think that you've spoken to this. You, you, you continue to embrace it. But for that young woman who went into audition, coming from the Shakespeare Festival, not really having done horror, to now talking about being on a stage with your fellow alumni of Fright and how you have embraced the genre rather than, than your relationship with Black Christmas. Like over the years, it seems like your relationship with horror itself has evolved in such a way that you've embraced it. Would, would that be fair to say?
3: Absolutely, Michael. I have now, I mean, I've done a lot of little independent horror films. I have a wonderful one called Mourn. And I just did a new one called Kilgren, K-I-L-L-G-R-I-N. K-I-L-L-G-R-I-N. <laughs> and, you know, even the fact of I'm getting to, you know, set myself on fire in Fahrenheit 451 was like totally cool to me. I I mean, I would love to be able to do more horror films now. And I keep putting it out there in the universe, hoping, you know, somebody will pick up on that and pick up on it Um for a lot of us who now, you know, are still working actresses and still, I think could, you know, maybe kind of tweak that horror genre away from the young sorority girls to the sweet little old ladies. I mean, there is actually, isn't there, um, a Swedish, there's a Swedish, um, writer that writes about people in old age homes committing crimes, you know, robbing art galleries and (laughs) because they want to actually make their situation better because they actually think if they're in jail, they would get better treated than they are treated in the old age home. I think there's a real story there because I think that's true. In jail, you get three nice meals a day, you know, as I certainly as someone in their 60s, I would imagine. (laughs) The idea of Older women committing crime just to get better housing. <laughs> That's a good idea.
0: Ty West, you know, has made Pearl this year with uh, Mia Goth, which
2: yes.
3: is
0: a fabulous, fabulous horror movie. But I will say that in the movie X, where she played the older woman, I kind of wish it was an older actress. I, I do think that it's time to see some some older actresses, like you say. You know, Baby Jane, one of the great movies, you yeah. know, Betty Davis yeah. playing a monster. Like, let's let some of these older actresses who've been terrorized in films, you know, in the past, let's let them be the, the terrors and, and yeah. come back and, and torture people, you know. So I think you're on to something, Lynn.
3: I think we are. Yeah.
0: One thing I did want to put out there, though, I feel like it's worth noting that. Canada, in particular, and Canadian horror is really special. And this is a, a, a maybe one of the, the most significant Canadian horror movies. And you were living in Canada when this movie was made. You grew up in Canada. Are you still in Canada? And should we put that out there for the Canadian horror filmmakers working yes, today? Yes,
3: I have returned to Canada.
0: Okay. Uh,
3: on the strength of Strange Brew, I moved to Los Angeles and I lived there for 12 years. But because of the politics and a lot of other things, and actually I moved back to Canada because there was a SAG strike, a Screen Actors Guild strike. Um, And when I came back, I was also in the process of trying to put my mother in a better living situation. And unfortunately, she passed away, so she left us a house. So... I married an American, brought him, his name is Sean Sullivan from Wayne's World and, you know, back to the future thing.
2: <laughs> anyway,
3: but we came back, you know, thinking that we would just close up the house and go back to L.A., but at that point... I auditioned for a series called Wind at My Back and ended up doing that for five years. Sean auditioned for a series called The Associates and he ended up doing that for three years. So now we're back living in Canada. And so certainly um, I would love to see a real resurgence of Canadian horror films because I think they they were really, really, really wonderful in the day. I will say too with Bob Clark, he and Albert Dunk, Bert Dunk, were the originators of whatever is now known as the cam. Because all that stuff, it's Bert's hands strangling me in the closet. It's Bert's hands climbing up the trellis on the outside. And at that point, he had a huge regular <laughs> movie camera strapped to his chest. Now, I mean, you know, the things that we could do, but you think that POV of the killer was so integral in black Christmas and something that we'd never quite seen before. Right. And now, you know, with a Steadicam, man, you know, gee, digital, we could, we could make a film for, I don't know, just a few dollars.
1: I was uh, thinking about your resume specifically in horror. You mentioned Storm of the Century earlier. We've talked about curtains, obviously Black Christmas. And I'm wondering, is inclement weather a prerequisite for you to star in a horror film?
3: I think somehow being trapped in your house. I mean, yesterday here, we had not quite an ice storm, but it was freezing rain all day and I just kept looking at out there and seeing people slipping and falling on the sidewalks. Fortunately the city now has cleared them, but you go, there's something about that isolation and that cold that somehow, you know, if you could leave your house and go to the beach, like a beach stalker film, maybe it wouldn't be quite as scary. <laughs> I think also, you know, as far as Canadian film and television goes, we're really good at horror and we're really good at comedy too. So there's a real lovely blend there that could make for some very interesting films of the future that, like Black Christmas, have comedy and horror mixed together. Mm.
0: Well, and Bob Clark is the is the perfect example of how Canadian filmmakers are good at both. And um,
3: yeah. yeah.
0: I really want to know when you're in a movie as iconic as Black Christmas and I see your evil elf. The audience can't see this, but there's a a, a scary evil elf just sitting over Lynn's shoulder. Yes, yes, terrifying there he is. How does this legacy affect your relationship with Christmas? What is Christmas and your relationship like, you know, is it more of a Christmas story, Bob Clark experience or is it a little more? terrifying
3: i think it's more black christmas because peaches you know (laughs) i I, you know your viewers can't see this but every year i make black christmas ornaments yes um, images of me with a plastic bag on my head this year i've even got (laughs) snow globes so it's getting really cool um but i've always done that like year after year but this year they're selling out (laughs) i don't know what's happening where
0: do people buy those
3: You just have to friend me on Facebook, send me a little direct message or private message, and I will send you one. I will ship one to you. I must admit, over the last few years, maybe I started this business about five years ago, but I've made hundreds and hundreds of them, and I adore it. And this year, because when I went out there like searching for ornaments, just the kind of plastic globes, Lo and behold, there were snow globes and I Mm -hmm. went, okay, now I'm going to get snow and now I'm going to get glitter and I'm going to really like um, create a whole new version of this ornament for people. So yes, they can just Facebook me and send me a message and, you know, that's what I do. I put them in a little box decorate them and send them off to you or your nearest and dearest <laughs> <laughs> or you know, to celebrate a merry black Christmas. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, I don't really do Christmas that much as a big deal in terms of, oh, presents. I mean, I have some nephews and, you know, kids in my life that I give presents to, but we don't really do a big exchange. We don't have a tree anymore because we have three cats and they would destroy it. So mainly what we like to do is watch Christmas movies, although we do have a show that we do like every other year that's called A Christmas Carol Comedy. We have an actor who plays Scrooge, and my husband Sean plays everybody else,
1: <laughs> and I direct it. I love that.
3: And evidently it just had its a very first American production without us, but American production in Philadelphia at the Hedgerow Theater. So it's, it's getting out there. It's by, an, uh, the author is Katie Lehman, and she wrote this hysterical version of A Christmas Carol, with still being quite true to the actual story. And other than that, this summer, my husband wrote a play called The Slaughter Brothers Dime Circus, which we had tried to get up in March of 2020, and then we were shut down because of the pandemic. And last year, last summer in 2022, we finally got it up and performed it. And it's a very terrifying, lovely for horror fans, because it's a circus that sort of morphs out of control into people turning into monstrous bugs that eat each other. (laughs) Oh, love it. Sort of a commentary on consumerism.
1: I love that you still have all of these creative endeavors. As I alluded to at the beginning of the show, your resume is long and continues to grow. I mean, listeners, truly, go check out Lynn's IMDb. If there's a show you love, I guarantee she's probably been on it at some point. As we wrap up, last question. We've been talking about this trajectory and the ongoing conversation and what Black Christmas has meant to you over the years. In this year, 2022... If someone's discovering Black Christmas for the very first time this Christmas, what do you want those people to know heading into the film?
3: Ah, oh, that's really interesting. Well, I think the thing is, don't make any assumptions as to what you're going to see or think that it fits into what is very contemporary horror filmmaking, that you're going to see something that's fairly unique and I think, you know, embrace it as something that's actually maybe a direction we should be returning to in terms of horror films, of making them more psychologically frightening. I think in watching it for the very first time, you might be surprised at how little blood and gore that you're actually going to see. And I, I, for one, I'm all for that. I mean, yeah. you know, apart from the scratches I had down my leg from Claude jumping up on my face and trying to, the like, catnip <laughs> off the bag. I mean, there isn't a lot of that in it. And I, I think people might be, find that very refreshing when they watch it for the first time. And I say to everybody, watch the original. I know a lot of people have talked to me about the two sequels. I watched one of them and was quite impressed with the acting, but not so much with the script. And they sort of seem to drift away from what the original story was. Um, There is another friend of mine named Dave McRae who does a small film called It's Me, Billy. And that is an homage to Black Christmas, which I'm sure you can find online too. And it's actually truer to the original Black Christmas than some of the other remakes.
0: Well, Lynn, we cannot thank you enough. What a treat to actually have you here on the show uh, for our special Christmas episode. We we just love that you agreed to come and talk with us and you've been a wonderful guest. So thank you so much. And of course, Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Black Christmas. Yes. I exactly. always have to say that. <laughs> Here's to uh, a healthier, happier, and more
3: peaceful
0: 2023. Yes. Amen. Well, that was our fantastic interview with the lovely, the wonderful Lynn Griffin. Oh, my God, Michael. I just enjoyed her immensely.
1: I have had the pleasure of spending time with Lynn, as we alluded to in the interview, as well as in her introduction. But what I really, really loved about this particular discussion with her, and it reminded me a bit of our talk with Adrian King when we did Friday the 13th, is it's not just that they starred in these movies. She's really thought about it and she's contextualized what made the movie work with audiences and why the movie resonates over the years and resonates with her and that's really special because you know as well as I do as a gig-to-gig performer there are things that stick with you and things that don't. You can make the movie or do the show and then move on and you don't really think about it a lot but she's thought a lot about Black Christmas and the thoughts that she has I think are really really significant to
0: understanding why this movie is so special. I love that she is one of these people who has this incredible legacy. She's been part of this really special thing and she's enjoying it. She really embraces it. I mean how cool is it that our listeners now have the inside scoop you know on how to get a handmade black christmas ornament from one of the stars of the film i mean you know she's she's really enjoying it and um she's just lovely and fun and i also liked that she uh did you catch the uh not so subtle way she insinuated margot kidder might have not just been playing drunk in the movie well, look, it seemed like it was very cold there. And people stay warm in different ways. <laughs> I'm not I'm not here to judge the people of right. Lewis Lane. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there is a truth to method acting. And I mean, there's nothing worse than a uh, person who's pretending or performing drunk in a movie where it's so obvious they're not drunk. So to have a few drinks, if you need to,
1: it's funny. Cause this is a sticking point for you. You bring it up a lot. You do, <laughs> you do not I do, care. I
0: do. You do, you
1: do not uh. care for faux drunk acting.
0: I don't, it drives me nuts. You know, there's something so specific about being intoxicated. And I would argue that method acting in, in some of these cases makes a lot of sense. Now, you can't actually method act in a movie like this all the way through because people would end up dead. The other thing that's really interesting is that poor Lynn had to act dead in this movie for for many hours at a time.
1: With a plastic bag on her head.
0: Yeah. If you are a,
1: a claustrophobic actor, need not apply, you know.
0: This is one of those beautiful Midnight Mass Christmas packages where we've got the, the the best of both worlds of guests. But before we bring on our Uber fans, I did want to say that uh, if you have not been over at our Patreon, you might want to check out the immense collection of cult Christmas movies that Michael and I have been highlighting over there in an advent calendar where we've been releasing a different cult movie every day for the 25 days leading up to Christmas in December. So, and that was Michael's idea. And I just love it. I love that we're doing that. And it seems like people are really enjoying it. Um, And it's another Creative way that we're trying to engage folks on our Patreon. Uh, and that, thank you for supporting us.
1: Yes, and that's right. We still have a few more shopping days left till Christmas, which means there are more days on the calendar to open. So every day at noon leading up till Christmas Day, we will offer up a different suggestion for a holiday horror film or cult film that you could watch this season. And the truth is, there are some that seem obvious and others are going to be out of left field suggestions. And we think that they all deserve to be seen.
0: And if you didn't yet access the Patreon, then you now know that that it's there, an entire collection of films for you to discover. And that will be um, on our Patreon for all time. So, you know, it's never too late to subscribe. Can you tell that I'm really trying to pitch this? You know, we, we need your support, okay? So, um, you, you know, subscribe and enjoy that advent calendar because actually we put a lot of work into it.
1: We sure did. And speaking of individuals who put a lot of work into the writing, these two definitely did way more than we did Yeah, uh, because they did an exhaustive, comprehensive deep dive into the world of Black Christmas with interviews with the cast and crew, uh, discussion about the themes, a look at the remakes. They are the authors of It's Me, Billy, Black Christmas Revisited, and they're here with us now. Paul Downey and David Hastings. Don't,
0: don't,
3: don't, Billy. Don't, Billy. No, 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 Billy. No, Billy. Let me lick it. Lick
0: it. Lick it. Let me lick your pretty picky cunt. (laughs) <laughs> You're pretty
1: big. Welcome back, listeners. In discussing this week's movie, we knew it was absolutely crucial we speak to our next guests because they wrote the book on the subject. Literally, I first became acquainted with one of the folks you're about to meet thanks to his creation and curation of Bloody Flicks, a horror review and news site that also spawned a film festival of the same name, all thanks to passion for the genre. When I learned that he, along with his fabulous co-author, had put to page a comprehensive, detailed exploration of perhaps the definitive holiday horror film, I knew that our Christmas celebration would not be complete without them. The book in question, It's Me, Billy, Black Christmas Revisited, is a passionate deep dive into Bob Clark's 1974 classic, featuring interviews with the cast, crew, an exploration of its themes, and a look at the sequels and remakes at his bond. Without further ado, please welcome authors Paul Downey and David Hastings. Paul, Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Clearly, you don't write a book about a movie you don't like. So tell me, both of you, how did you first come to Black Christmas? When did you discover the, your passion for this movie?
2: In terms of our, uh, our journey with the film, I think it is a fairly kind of similar, it's a similar story in, this, in the sense that, um, as, you, as you both know, um, you know, as I think we're all around a fairly similar age. There was a point when, when films were a little harder to get hold of and you would see a film on television and it would kind of go away and then you would think, what have I just seen? And um, I think, me and Dave saw the film around a similar age, and uh, it was on a channel called Channel Four. But we would both seen it. Uh, I don't know if we actually saw it in, in the same year, around uh, probably around the two thousand mark. And um, and it was kind of like, what is this film? And it, and it had these these moments in it, and it kind of it stays with them. And then a few years later, there was a, a label in the UK called Tartan, um, which did a lot of uh, kind of what we'd probably call genre films in terms of releases. they would do things like audition and um, a lot of the Asian cinema releases that were a lot harder to get hold of in this country and they did a, they did this great release of Black Christmas with a, a documentary with a, um, a gentleman who called Dan Duffin. He did a website called ironically it's Billy.com. And it was kind of a resource in the early 2000s on, a, on an Angel Fire site, which I know I'm showing my age here. We basically, from that, got in touch with with Dan eventually, and he became part of our kind of, almost like a resource, almost like a this this library that we um, we helped to start piecing it together. But in terms of the film, yeah, it, it was kind of fr- from there. And then um, from me running the the Bloody Flicks website, i managed to get an interview with Lynn Griffin, who's in the 74 film. From that, I kind of thought, I'll, I'll I'll try for some more because i I want to do this retrospective just on the website and um and thought at a point it kind of it got it gained a little bit more traction and I was like, there's something in this and me and dave just we 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 talk horror anyway, you know we we're we're good friends and we worked on a couple of projects together by that point, and Dave just said to me said, do you need some help basically uh, and I said, yeah, and then but we come at it from very different angles because me, as, as a trained journalist, you know, I, I I come at it from a writing perspective. Dave is a filmmaker by trade, um, so he could offer that insight that maybe was a little bit missing from my analysis. So he, when he saw shots and things like that or musical cues or anything like that, he could offer a different perspective. So we bounced off each other quite well creatively like that, I think.
4: Yeah, this, yeah, this room I'm in mean, now, uh, we spent a lot of time in here just kind of like, writing ideas down and, and I remember we we literally over Skype just kind of structured the entire book one night and wrote the introduction. Um and it was just really exciting. Like Paul had got all these interviews and stuff and you know he was like, oh my you know, maybe this would be good enough for a book and stuff and everything. And I was like, oh can I come and help on because I just absolutely adore this film. It's just one of the few films that can generally just leave a mark on you in the horror genre especially. Um, you know, I, I I don't think it's an over the top film. It's it's more substance and and stuff. And and I think because of that, and because I I like I, like Paul says, we kind of watched it at the same time in the UK. And you know, obviously we didn't know each other then and stuff. But I just remember like I watched it the first time, and I just went, "This is now my Christmas Eve film every year." And so I've I have to watch this film every year at Christmas Eve and stuff because it's just stunning and it makes no apologies as well for what it is you know it, it does things story-wise that most films today would shy away from quite quite interesting subplots and things like that and it was just visually just stunning and i would never really seen anything like it you, you know you've got garbage halloween and, and that's visually stunning as well but there was something just about this film that was just dark and it's just Christmas Eve on a night when everybody goes quiet.
0: It being on Channel 4, it probably had to be edited to some degree or censored, right? I
4: can't remember it being censored, and I think maybe the C word.
0: (laughs) We had something called Skinamax, which was Cinemax, which was a cable television channel, but on Friday nights, you know, it would get real sexy. But anyway, that has nothing to do with Black Christmas, but it's that feeling of knowing, I saw this thing, I remember this thing. And especially seeing it at a a young age and, and it kind of forges like an an obsession in your head, you know, it it makes such an imprint. And I mean, for you, this is your, you know, it's a wonderful life, right? Like people have these, you know, traditions of, of, of movies they watch at Christmas time or home alone or whatever. Um, But black Christmas for a certain group of us, this is a holiday tradition and certainly it's true for both of you. So I guess, my question to both of you is, as people who are really into this movie, have you seen Dave, how this movie may have affected your choices as a filmmaker or has it inspired you? And and Paul as a writer, you know, someone who be, started interviewing these people, did you find a particular interest in this that you didn't find with other, you know, subject matter?
4: Well, I mean, Bob Clark for me is is just was was amazing. Um, you know, I, I think as well, coming from a very low-budget kind of filmmaking background, you kind of, what you don't have, I find, is kind of like it opens up the creative possibilities that not really sees as an obstacle. It's more like, well, actually, we can't do this, so what can we do? And you look at ways, and Bob kind of worked very much like that. Like, he had a lot more budget than I ever had, but it was, still wasn't amazing, you know, in a, in a sense. So he had to work around a lot of things, and I always find that, you know, you know, the the, the steady cam stuff, well steady cam, the, the the PRV shots and everything that he was doing, you know, I've done that in film since, you know, and and I think what I, I like as well is and what I try and do when I do horror films and stuff, is I, I'm that less is more approach, which is what Black Christmas is. You know, I mean to this day we still have no idea what Billy looks like. Right. And it's nearly fifty years yeah. afterwards and stuff. Do you know what I mean? And it, and and that for me is part of Making a good horror film and a good story, you know, you, you you tell the story, by all means, you get a story across, but you, you know, you drip feed certain things. I think one of the things that makes Black Christmas so enduring is, is Billy. We just have no idea who he is and there was no sequels that came after it. There was no curse of Billy and stuff like Halloween 6 and everything that tried to explain stuff and everything. It wasn't. It was just literally, you had a beginning, he walks into a house, causes shit and stuff. I'm going to swear now because you said the F word earlier. So <laughs> causes all Go of-
0: for it. It's a podcast.
4: I was cautious with the C word earlier, but I thought, okay. Um, <laughs> oh, no. But, you,
0: know, you say um, it all the
4: time. I do say it when I'm at work, but <laughs> 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 you know, it causes absolute mayhem. And then at the end, we're not the wiser. So for, for me, when I'm doing horror films and things like that, I, I always look at the villains as in how, how can we show stuff but also at the same time not divulge things 50 years afterwards now we still have no idea who this fucking guy was all we know is we can see his eye and he's got a very very fell mouth and maybe a sister called agnes but we, that's another story
2: <laughs> we'll, we'll get on to that when we talk about 2006 yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um yeah i think in terms of the, of the writing aspect i think it's um it, it's, it's very interesting because black christmas to, to us is very um and and to to a lot of people as well is is, is very multi layered. I think in the sense that um, because hands up the the first Bob Clark film I ever saw was Porky's, and I saw it when I was fifteen, and and I was I was still in high school at the time. And um, the next day, everyone at school was talking about it like it was this big taboo subject because we didn't really see films that were so. Crude, um, certainly, at, you know, ten o'clock on a Thursday night or whatever it was, and and then years later to find out that Bob Clark had done Black Christmas, and obviously he'd done um, uh, Christmas Story, wasn't it? The, his kind mm. of other, other kind of Christmas film. Um, in terms of the write, the writing aspect, the the part that I I really gravitate towards was hearing uh, kind of about people's experiences. I'm very much into the kind of human interest element of when we write these sort of projects. It's about How did you feel, you know, what was going on behind the scenes? Because I think what we found with a lot of it, um, certainly from the interview perspective, which was a a big chunk of what my task was with the book, across all three films as well, was when things didn't always go to plan, what was plan B? But also at the same time, um, how did you craft these little moments that have become etched within, you know, popular culture? Because I think, me and Dave were were lucky enough to have a Skype call with a, a gentleman called Nick Mancuso Jr., who did a, one one of the voices of Billy. There was there was three, Bob Clark did one, Nick Mancuso did another, and then we still aren't com- fully confirmed on who the third one was, which was the female voice, which we think may have been one of the costume designers or someone or one of the extras basically. And one of the first things that Nick Mancuso did when when we did the interview over Skype from his house, and I think he he lives in France. Is he did the bit the Billy voice, and it sent a literal chill down your spine. It was so on point, and it was really unnerving. And I suppose that's acting, isn't it? And, you know, um, you three all all know better than I do, you know, um, that, you know, actors can turn it on and off like a switch.
4: At the same time as well, hearing that voice, it was proper like nerdgasm time. Because it was completely, you know, we pretty much sat there just going, oh my God, he's doing the voice! (laughs) You know, and it was like, we were there going you know, trying to be professional on this video chat, but inside just going,
1: but it's, as you say, what we know of Billy really is his voice. And that's something that I wanted to dig into because when we talk about Black Christmas culturally, it's often referred to as sort of the proto slasher. You know, it's four years before John Carpenter makes Halloween. We see John Carpenter clearly pulls reference from it for Halloween but it also sets up a lot of tropes that we head into in the 80s. And one of the things that I really think Bob Clark does so masterfully that a lot of other folks, even in creating a facsimile of Black Christmas, fail at is the nuance of the character, specifically with regard to the character of Jess. Because horror movie characters for a long time, not all, I mean, because, you know, you can't lump all of cinema into one space, but there was there was a lack of nuance. And here, she is given a whole storyline that by and large does not affect the menace in the house, but the fact that we know she's pregnant and that that is an important factor in the story makes the layers of Black Christmas all the more significant. And when you say that Billy, all these years later we still don't know what he looks like, I wonder if those things are not Intrinsically linked. Here's a woman who's trying to have bodily autonomy. Men are trying to tell her what to do with her body, and she's also at the victim of an unseen male force. Do you think these things are all connected? When you put it like
2: that, it's it's really logical in 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 a sense. And um, I think one of the things when we were looking at themes in terms of the book, certainly D- Dave wrote a big big chunk about in terms of. The kind of it was the kind of around the anti-abortion laws. that think at the time when Black Christmas was being made, or, or just beforehand. And obviously, the, there's there's other things you know, like you know, uh, you know, women's rights and things like that. And it's it's very bold in a sense because what what you have is you have this you have a strong female protagonist, which is, which is you know par for the course for a slasher, obviously, or a proto slasher in this case. But at the same time, what we've got is we've got a really three dimensional character who does makes her own choices um, and obviously you know she has designs beyond perhaps the, the the nuclear family essentially when peter finds out that she potentially doesn't want to keep the baby he ends up smashing a piano up and you know and, and obviously becomes almost a red herring in, in in the whole thing and it's um it was it was really interesting because it, at that time that's that could have gone very sidewards Tonal balance is really important with that sort of subject because if you get it really wrong, it will, well, it will age horribly, whereas we're still talking about it 50 years later as this really progressive theme, essentially, you know, and, and it's and it's beyond, the, you know, a woman surviving a male protagonist or what we think is a male protagonist who wants to do her harm. But obviously, you know, when you're talking about like, like say obviously in terms of the the abortion angle you've you've got a whole different layer there because it's an, an extra sense of danger and you know um there have been cases in the past i think it was the third friday, friday the 13th and a lady in that seemed to be pregnant but also kind of really not nonchalantly killed off so that that's kind of when you get your tonal balance quite wrong essentially you know where, when you're dealing with that sort of thing
4: it's interesting like we talked about earlier with layers and stuff, you know, with the characters, but it also links in with the story that's going on as well. Because if you, if you notice as well, obviously it's a Canadian film, but if you look closely, it's pretending to be an American film. So if you look at Nash's desk, there's a little American flag on it and everything. They're just trying to make it look American, even though it's filmed in Canada. So, you know, um, there's a lot of things going on in America at the time, whereas there's, you know, when we were looking into this and researching it, you know, Canada is a lot more liberal and it's becoming a lot more liberal in the 70s and stuff, whereas as America and you've got, you know, you've had the civil rights movements, you've got the punk era coming in, the hippie era coming in and everything. And, and like you say, women's rights and Wade versus Roe, which was the year before Black Christmas came out, which has obviously been in the news in the last year because it's been overturned, if I've been told right.
0: Oh, yes, you have. We're actually living in a horror movie. <laughs> well, we've got Tories here, mate. So <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
4: But you know, it, there's a lot of stuff going on in that storyline, and and it's not used as a kind of focal political sense. It's there that you can acknowledge it, but it's not being used in a detrimental way. It's just used to kind of make these characters a bit more three D. You know, Claire goes missing, and her dad comes into it. That's horrifying. That is because people go missing as well. Well, that's another storyline that's kind of like it doesn't feel like there's too many storylines in the film, but that all kind of like picking off social things that were potentially going on at the time and still go on. Like, you know, like we said, like Raid versus Roe, it, it's it's come back in the news again. You know, these things are constant things that we're fighting against. And I think as filmmakers, especially Bob Clark as well, you know, reading about him and stuff, he, he very much liked to touch on these subjects, but not in a way that would be very distracting or or would be kind of like exploited, but they, they would be used in the plot. So they, you know, you could think about them afterwards and go, oh, actually, you know, that creates conversations. But also in the in the, the context of the film, it makes those characters more vulnerable. It makes you think, again, you know, Bob's character, she's an alcoholic. Yeah, it, it produces fun in the film and it produces a lot of laughs and stuff. But actually, if you listen to that first phone call she has at the beginning with her mom on the phone, you really listen to that and you you just zone out of everybody else talking around of the drinks and everything. It's that's devastating phone call that is if her mom is just abandoning her for for Christmas. Thinking about it afterwards, it actually gives so much weight to these characters that you, yes. that you don't get in, the, in the, the the slashes afterwards, in a sense. Like the slashes kind of took the template and kind of went, right, well, we've got the template. That's all
0: we need. And it's like, well, yeah, but you kind of need to care for people as well. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that part of it, but as you're describing it. There is so much depth to these characters. And it doesn't matter if things are seen all the way through. It's more like reality where, you know, if someone over here is struggling with abortion and this person over here is struggling with alcoholism, that's how we live our lives. Like, we we can't obsess over everyone's issue. And in this film, they have a bigger issue, right? People are being killed. And it it gives those characters a sort of depth that you don't often get in, in a slasher movie. And as much as I love slasher movies of the '80s, they don't have the the darkness. And part of the darkness, I think, isn't just that it's literally dark. Black Christmas is dark, literally. But because these seem like and they feel like real people to us, rather than slutty teenage caricatures. Or I mean, I feel like Halloween is really good, but at the same time, like they don't have a lot of depth, um, and we don't know very much about them. Friday the 13th, I mean, they don't even try, you know. Uh, there's very, very little depth there, you know. So I, I love that you're bringing that up. And I was going to ask you what what you all thought about the characters, and you, you dug into that, because I feel like I love Barb. And I feel like Margot Kidder in this movie is such a star. And you really... You know, of course she became a star, you know, Um, yeah. and she had already been acting because I went and looked it up and I'm sure you know more than I do about it. I guess she had just worked with Robert Altman on Sisters. She was a Canadian um, actor, but early in her career. But I find as someone who has had um alcoholism in my life and, and has dealt with it, I hate people acting drunk in movies. I often feel like on TV and in movies, it is terrible, but I will say that Margot Kidder as Barb delivers just a gut-wrenching, realistic performance. So I'm wondering what you all think, like who are your favorite characters? I mean, I feel like the performances in this movie in some ways are elevated from a regular slasher movie.
4: Yeah. If you look back at um, Barb's character and stuff, she's literally abandoned by her mother so she surrounds herself with these girls, some of them she doesn't get on with, and then she's killed alone. Yeah. She's abandoned. Yeah. She's she's vulnerable from that moment. She's killed alone, in a sense. Somebody takes advantage of somebody who is alone in the world at that point. You know, and, you know, you, you just, like you say in a slasher film, somebody's just off, simple as that. But you, I think Black Christmas is very good because it's, you don't stop thinking about it afterwards. You don't come out something and go, "Well, that was good." You know, roll the next one. Black Christmas kind of just you know, almost infects your mind a little bit because you then peel back the layers post viewing. In a sense, it, 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 that's kind of what I started doing, and that's why it was frustrating with me when I first watched it because I was like, "I want to watch that again," and I didn't record it. <laughs> so, so I was like, I was stuck for years then, just yeah. going, "Well, I remember that bloody eye in the the, the door. That was about it," and I remember um, Nash who's probably one of my um, favourite policemen of all time, uh, with <laughs> fellatio. God love that scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear me. I rue the day I looked at fellatio at the work computer. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, that was an interesting conversation with the boss. Why was you taking fellatio? Oh, it's just film work.
2: <laughs> so. For me, it's probably, uh, it's probably Phil, actually, who's played by Andrea Martin, because, again, she has this... Um, She's this really loyal friend, especially to Jess, obviously, when things really have started to go south in terms of the girls that have been picked off. And she's a real support element. She's always kind of there. And then, obviously, the way she kind of meets her end, she just walks into this this bedroom and then the door closes around and it's so creepy. And obviously, this is the point when it's kind of Jess is left to basically survive. And it's really tragic in, in that sense. I mean, the, the, all the deaths are kind of tragic in a sense. We we see a lot of what happens to Bob, and obviously, you know, Claire's death at the beginning is quite iconic because of the you know the bag and the head and the you know and the attic and that, which obviously became like the the promotional artwork as well. Um, yeah, I think, uh, and obviously, you know, Andrew Martin came back to do the remake, so she obviously had an affinity for the property, and obviously, having Bob Clark there, I think, for two thousand and six as almost a, a guiding light to a point, of, uh, to a point out, I will, I will stress that, um, <laughs> uh, was probably one of the reasons that she got back involved. And to be honest, uh, when we did reach out to other people, just as a, as a, as a side tangent, um, some people didn't want to talk about the project because people from the film were no longer with us and they, they found it quite hard to talk about. Uh, and that, that was, you know, a real human response. And I'd, I'd never kind of had that before. From a, Usually, you know, for interview requests, I usually just get a flat no or, you know, uh, some other time. But, you know, I was like, fair enough. I think if I had to pick a
4: favorite character, as much as I love Nash and that scene with Lacio, um, I think it would have to be Mrs. Mack, because I generally want to be <laughs> like that when I retire one day. Just literally putting bottles around the house everywhere. <laughs> <and> just <laughs> Finding them in the Bible and stuff and everything and just doing that too, you know, just doing the, the finger up to people and stuff. I just think she's um, <laughs> just amazing. And then that, again, is another thing about the film is it's so dark, but yeah, actually there's some bloody good humor in it. Like, And you shouldn't laugh. You shouldn't be laughing at this. It's like, this is like, you know, these girls are in power, but you're like, this is just too funny. I can't, I can't not laugh at this.
1: I like what you said about the innate family nature of independent film that made this this movie happen and, and have that special quality to it. And you've mentioned in passing the 2006 Black Christmas remake, and we know it was also remade again in 2019. And I don't really want to get in the, the weeds of whether the remakes are good or not, but we do know that they are divisive. And I'm wondering if part of what makes Black Christmas, 1974, so special is not only because it blazed the trail, but because it was made sort of outside of the system. Is part of the magic of Black Christmas the fact that you can't really replicate it in a lab, I guess? It's been said a million times, hasn't it, you know, with Halloween and that. It's lightning in a bottle. As hard as we all, you know, as
2: we all try and, you know, in terms of, of filmmakers, and obviously we've got fan films out there now and we've got all sorts, to capture mood... And to capture that moment, wherever it may be, you know, through horror or or any kind of film that stands the test of time, regardless of when it was made, I think it's just, it's just one of them things that, you know, it's right time, right place. And it's just, it's that little bit of something that we can't quite articulate. I think Peaches probably said it best is that, Black Christmas is a dark film and and, and you, you can feel it. You can almost feel the wind chill in the air. And the fact that it was that cold when they were filming it, you know, they were filming in like minus five in Canada, you know, obviously, which is a cold country anyway, especially in winter, you know, with Carpenters Halloween, you know, which obviously kind of comes later in Elm Street and all, and all these other films that have kind of been pastiche to death. Um, with Black Christmas, I think because the, the two... Uh, remakes are so different I think they knew that they couldn't really straight remake it uh, that that may be part of it you know and obviously they're, they're released in different times audience taste changer I think if you tried to make a, a straight up Black Christmas almost like the Psycho remake in 98 like the Gus Van Sant you couldn't really do it because it's too clean it's, we're in a different era now of filmmaking and it would just look a bit too slick I think I think if this
4: film had been made by an American company and it had had a massive budget and it had stars in it and all that kind of stuff, it wouldn't have felt that dark. It wouldn't have felt that grittiness. You know, even the fact that the, you know, when you watch the film and there's loads of dirt on the screen and stuff, you know, the, the, the you know, the grain on the screen, that helps it as well. You know, the, whenever you watch it on 4k or 2k and stuff, there's, there's grain everywhere. it's like, you know, and that kind of adds to that kind of like, kind of adds to the atmosphere of it. It's like even the film itself is not pristine. So, you know, the storyline that you've got of this this horrible person and and so forth and this very low-budget nature and stuff, it just works in its favour because it adds to that kind of, like, it's not quite right. It doesn't look quite right. So, therefore, the storyline is not going to be quite right, you know, uh, and everybody gives it their all and stuff. But I think if it looked clean, 4K or whatever you want to shoot it on and stuff, I think the fact that it wasn't on 4K and everything and stuff, just you know, film stock that it was on, I think that just helps, just give it that kind of set of nowhere kind of feeling. And like you say, you know, you know, you feel in the wind chills and the cold to it. And yeah, I mean, you know, as, as an indie filmmaker, you know, it, it, I know what the limitations are of, of filming on that kind of, you know, budget and, and lower than that. But it makes your films a bit more grittier. And if you're trying to, if you're making a film that is supposed to be gritty, it kind of goes hand in hand with it in a sense. And it creates, it helps create the atmosphere and it helps create the tone of the, of the old overall film.
0: Remakes are just interesting and divisive in general, you know, amongst horror fans. And I'm definitely not one of those anti-remake people because the truth of the matter is, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing is, you know, in my mind, one of the best movies you know, ever. And um, certainly Cronenberg's The Fly is a movie that I think is just amazing. And as far as the newer remakes, I quite liked The Hills Have Eyes. And I actually think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, is one of my top two favorite movies ever made. And I actually would argue that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake is pretty good because it's nothing like the original and it entertained me. But somehow the Black Christmas movies didn't work for me and it's that thing where it's like as a filmmaker i wouldn't want to do a remake because it's like holy shit i think there's this idea amongst hollywood and companies like well let's remake something it's a safe bet people love the this one so they're gonna love this one and in some ways it probably is a safe bet as far as box office goes because i do think they do well at the box office but god two black christmases and neither filmmaker (laughs) i mean in my opinion you know got it right but i also as a filmmaker wouldn't have taken on the task you know because it is such a such a great movie the 1974 version so i love that conversation because it is something where it's like oh wow it's a, it, there is no formula to success with remakes you know hopefully you've got a new original idea and a way to retell this story and i guess maybe the one thing i will say is they tend to work best i think when either you're doing something totally different, or the original film, as Wes Craven said, you know, with with Hills Have Eyes or Romero said with the Crazies, didn't get the full treatment. It didn't. It, the story wasn't yeah. told because of limitations due to budget or whatever. And then you have Wes Craven come in and help. Aha. Aja, is that how you say his name? You know, with with the, the remake, it, it, it worked. It, it, to me, it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense because Wes Craven got to go, oh, you should do this or you should do that, you know. Anyway, Black Christmas, yeah, it's fascinating. Well, I want to thank you both so, so much for for joining us for this conversation. I feel like we barely even scratched the surface. So I, I guess my question as horror fans Obviously, we know, you know, Paul, you're a, a big horror fan, as is evidence from your your uh, website and blog. And Dave, I'm going to describe to the viewers what I'm seeing right now, because it really needs to be illustrated. Dave is sitting in a room, I'm assuming that's in his house, and there is a life-size, not like a little one, like a, an actual human size Michael Myers, just off in the distance, like just hanging out back there, like... I just keep going. Wouldn't that be cool if the, that, that, that thing just moved and came over and started strangling him? And it was, we were part of some weird Zoom movie. There's also a, a life size Chucky doll. You know, they're both life size. There's a lit jack o' lantern. You guys are horror fans. So, my question to you is we've tackled the remake, but really, Black Christmas is, is best known as the uh, grandmother, grandfather of, of slasher films, the movie that really is the original. Black Christmas being the mother of all slasher films, giving birth to this massive genre. I mean, massive. What, outside of Black Christmas, because it is a singular movie, we have these other huge slasher franchises. What other movie or franchise are you particularly fond of?
4: Well, it's Halloween for me. I mean, I, I love all of them, to be honest. Um, I say Halloween is my favourite horror film of all time, but Black Christmas is, is literally a few millimetres behind it. I can't change that forever and stuff. It's just a slightly few millimetres behind it. I think it's because I, I saw Halloween before, I saw Black Christmas, so, you know, more for nostalgia more than anything. But they're so, both of them, if I could do it jointly, they would be both there. But it is literally millimetres away from each other and stuff. Fair enough.
2: Certainly for, for both. I was thinking, like I said, um, Halloween is, is a formative experience. Um, Halloween, um, Dave says, he uh, like I say, he watches Black Christmas every year. I'll watch Halloween every year. I won't watch Black Christmas every year. Um, mm. I kind of, I, I save it as almost like a treat. Um, so uh, it's quite good this year in, in the sense that finally some UK distributors are, are actually putting it in UK cinemas over Christmas. So uh, hopefully we're going to get a chance to, to watch it uh, on the big screen, because I've never seen it on the big screen. It's, I think it'd be quite a unique experience. But yeah, in terms of the franchise, sorry to relate to the question, but yeah, ha- Halloween's kind of um, current at the moment, obviously, with having this new trilogy as well. Um, we're kind of missing the, uh, the other ones at the moment, and obviously we know that Friday's coming back. We're hoping Nightmare comes back. And, um, you know, um, we, are, we are living in a good time, actually. Hellraiser yes, came back. Revival.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, I actually
2: uh,
1: really, really enjoyed it. Me too. From seeing this on Channel 4 to writing a book about it, obviously taking the time to write a book is a journey and a deep dive that most people who love movies do not do. So from the beginning to the publication... Has your relationship with Black Christmas changed at all over the years? What I found is that from a
2: publication date to actually, well, till present day actually, because it came out in, the, I think it was the January of this year, even though it feels longer, um, I've never had the kind of the inkling to kind of rewatch the Blu-ray yet or anything like that. It's interesting when you, when you, like you say, when you deep dive into a film, sometimes you almost divorce yourself a little bit from it because you want to kind of almost have a clean break. Whereas I think, now i could re-watch it and i could actually enjoy it which which sounds really bad in a sense because i think when we were analyzing them especially you know in terms of obviously the polarizing you know remakes and that we were looking at them from an analytical point of view so we were really kind of you know taking them apart and putting them back together whereas now we can kind of enjoy them again and sometimes we'll, we'll spot things you know and we'll be like oh i wish that was in the book and you know and, and you know the one that got away was Olivia Hussey. We wanted to interview Olivia Hussey, but we just couldn't get hold of her. There was a couple of like minor regrets and little, you know, almost like oaths you want to settle with it. But um, yeah, I think um, the relationship, if anything, is, is, is richer now than it's probably ever been.
4: The only thing I'd suggest people not to do is ever watch it in the summer. I watched it in July once. It was on the Horror Channel a, and I just felt it was like, this doesn't feel right. It was like the sunny outside. There's kids playing football outside. I'm like, this is not. Business and stuff, so I'd avoid that if I if I could give advice. But I think with me going forward, it's actually quite it's got closer to me simply because I'm doing a PhD on it now, and the the PhD involves writing a feature script sequel to it. Wow, oh that's exciting! I've got ideas, I've got how I want to do it and stuff, but I've got to do like four years of research and looking at the Canadian film industry and societal trends and everything like that. And then I've got a pen, a sequel, like a proper feature-length sequel to it. And the only thing I'll tell you about it is it's not modern day. That's in nineteen eighty-four. So the only mobile phones you'll get is them big fuck-off Wall Street ones. and <laughs>
0: <laughs> That sounds like a uh, like an exclusive. Like wh- like you heard it here first. You know, this is that is really exciting. And you know, I um was doing research, getting ready for today. And because I'm in London, um, when I was Googling, um, I saw that the screenings are coming up, of black Christmas. So I don't know if they're doing that in North America, maybe Michael, you know, but I, I saw that they were happening here. And I will tell you, if you haven't been to England at Christmas time, you should come because it is so fucking over the top. British Christmas beyond. I mean, Americans do Halloween. We do Halloween like nobody else does Halloween. But the Brits do Christmas like nobody else does Christmas. It is insane. I would love to see Black Christmas at a cinema in the UK. So you'll have to report back and let us know what the screenings were like. There was a one-off last year.
4: Nobody spoke. Everybody was just quiet. But was it well attended?
0: Yeah.
1: it It
4: was sold out. You could hear a pin
1: drop. Well, Paul and Dave, thank you both uh, for joining us. Where can people find you? Where can they find the book? Books on Amazon, isn't it,
4: Paul?
2: <laughs> Amazon and uh, Bear Money Media is the publisher. So if you search yeah. for It's Me, Billy, uh, with Bear Money Media in Google, you'll find it quite easily. There's um, paperback, hardback, and ebook versions of, of the book. Yeah. Um, so I think for me, it's it's mainly um, Twitter at Bloody Flicks, the Facebook page is at Bloody Flicks UK. Um, Look out for news on our film festival returning in February 2022. Uh, Over to you, Dave. I've forgotten
4: my Twitter is. Oh, shit. Do you know what? Just type in Dave Hastings. You'll find me somewhere, I'm sure. Actually, (laughs) type Bloody Flicks in and just look at his followers. I'll be there somewhere.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When we promote the episode, we'll tag you and share your, your handles. We'll take care of it. So, Thank you both so much. And um, for Paul, Dave, and myself, it's a good evening. And uh, for Michael, it's a good morning. So take care. That was Another coup, you know? um, thank thankfully, Michael knows all these incredible people because it's one thing. We use the expression that someone's so knowledgeable about something that they wrote the book on it. Well, <laughs> in this case, these two really did write the book on it. So that was great. And I mean, uh, no no bigger fandom um exists than when someone actually obsessed enough that they decide together to write a book about their love of a particular film.
1: They're thoughtful reflection on these movies, as well as its place in uh, pop culture, really contextualizes from a fan standpoint. Because, you know, Lynn brought that from the, a person who was there. We had both versions of how you could look at this film, from the inside out and the outside in. And I think it paints a really big picture of how important this movie really was, not just for holiday cinema or for horror cinema, but as, as a cinematic anomaly that steamrolled a whole kind of movement.
0: One thing I really loved about their discussion with us, and, and I think this is true of the movie Gremlins as well, because we we decided this year to not just limit our Christmas special to one episode, right? So we we're really pretty self-indulgent and decided, hey, we can't decide if we want to do Gremlins as our Christmas special or Black Christmas, so fuck it, we're going to do both, and we've done both. And I love that both these films, I think for a lot of us, obsessed people out there, are connected to our tradition of Christmas. You know, people people all over the world watch Bob Clark's a Christmas story every year. It's on every TV channel and people watch it repeatedly. But if you are one of us, you may actually watch a different Bob Clark movie every year at Christmas time and for these two that's very true.
1: And you know, it's funny because when you make holiday films, as well as genre films, there becomes this interest. And I've done interviews with a lot of different outlets We're like, well, how can you make horror and how can you make holiday films? And how do you reconcile those two aesthetics? But what you just said really answers the question. And I know that probably the execs at Hallmark would, would like, you know, grit their teeth at me saying this, but holiday movies are cult films. They're just a different kind of cult film for exactly what you said. When people find the ones they like, whether they're the dark and scary ones like Black Christmas or something warm and nostalgic, like a Christmas story, they make it part of their tradition. And so by making it part of their tradition, they watch it every year. And then in doing so, it becomes their Christmas. And thus you have your own little cult every year, perennially returning to the thing that
0: you made. So if this Christmas you and your loved ones are sitting down putting on a fire and getting in the, the festive season by turning on a movie where someone's whispering in the ears of young women about their juicy cock. Well, you too may be one of the children of the popcorn now) <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.